You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number economy. of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hi, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Economy Matters podcast. I'm Tom Heinches, managing editor of the Atlanta Fed's Economy Matters magazine. Today, it's our privilege to have Dennis Lockhart, president and CEO of the Atlanta Fed, in the studio with us. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. Thank you, Tom. I should set the stage for our conversation today by telling listeners that Dennis is stepping down as president of the Atlanta Fed at the end of February. So it's a time of very mixed emotions for us here at the bank. Dennis became the Atlanta Fed's 14th president on March 1st, 2007, and he's led the bank through a very um, eventful and interesting decade. And he's agreed to talk with us today about his tenure at the helm of the Atlanta Fed. Dennis, uh, first let's address the reason behind your stepping down. Well, basically my term ends on February 28th. Uh, There are uh, internal rules about how long someone can serve and uh, I get to the end of the allowed period for a president to uh, serve in that position. Dennis, what initially appealed to you about the opportunity to become a policymaker? Well, when I was uh, first interviewing for the position um, and I was asked the question, why do you want this job? Right. My answer was uh, public service for its own sake. I had for many, many years in thinking about the arc of my career, wanted to have some period of public service. And so this was my opportunity to do that. And the economic policy, I guess you'd say, was closest to my experience as a banker and my experience in the private sector. And uh, so I really wanted the opportunity to, and the experience, of being a policymaker in the economic sphere. Right. Well, uh, you came to the Fed after years spent in the world of finance and, and then academia, giving you a, a really special skill set entering a policymaking institution. But even so, were there any aspects of leading the bank and, and becoming a policymaker that might be called on-the-job training? Well, yes. I, I think the most uh, challenging new experience, you might say, when someone becomes a policymaker late, late in his or her career is uh, communicating with the public either directly or through the press. So learning to be uh, very measured and judicious in my choice of words and learning to communicate accurately and having my statements backed up by good fact-checking and empirical analysis in many cases. Uh, That certainly was something that I had not experienced before and I had to learn when I came onto this job. Right, right. Uh, Well, as I noted just a few minutes ago, you joined the Atlanta Fed in March 2007. And at that time, the economy had been humming along quite nicely for some time. But it wasn't too long after that that the economic situation became really um, interesting. Uh, can you describe that period when you were fairly new in your role as bank president and the economy was, was really on the precipice? Well, I remember it very well because it was my first year uh, in the role. And 
I actually chose the start date of March 1st, 2007 in order to qualify to attend a, uh, a Federal Open Market Committee meeting that I believe was the 22nd, 21st or 22nd, and internal rules required three weeks on the job before you could attend an FOMC meeting. Right. And uh, the tone of that first meeting was very sanguine, very positive about the economy. Second meeting was much the same, and it wasn't until the summer of 2007 when we began to see some signs that were worrisome, in that case particularly in the subprime mortgage-backed securities markets. Right. And then, you know, rather rapidly from the summer of 2007, the crisis began to develop. And uh, it was fast-moving. It was unpredictable. And to some extent, my colleagues and I thought it was containable, and it proved not to be so containable. Uh, so it was a... Uh, it was a, a really fast ride there for for many months to, uh, into uh, 2008 and, and even in 2009. Well, Dennis, you really had front row seat to the financial crisis as the Fed played a key role in pulling the economy back from the brink. In some ways, it had to be a, a harrowing time to be policymaker. And when you look back on that period, what memories or impressions are most vivid well, uh, certainly the meetings in which I was in the room with Ben Bernanke, who was leading the Fed at that time, and all of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee, as well as some ad hoc meetings that, that uh, had not earlier been scheduled but had to be scheduled because of the nature of the emergency. Those meetings uh, were, were tense in certain respects. Um, they were meetings in which it was clear that the committee was uh, dealing with a great deal of uncertainty and trying to devise measures to address uh, what was happening. And you know, they were critical meetings and critical um, deliberations of, of the Federal Open Market Committee. And I remember one particularly because it was a it was called uh, with short notice, and it was a secret meeting until the minutes were later uh, later published, and that was Martin Luther King weekend of 2008, in, in which the committee chose to drop the federal funds rate, the policy rate, by a further 75 basis points. Normally, we operate with increments of a quarter of a percent. Sure. And so it was quite that's a large Unusual move. to drop by 75 basis points in one meeting. I remember that one particularly well. It was not a face-to-face -face meeting, but was done by remote media and, uh, you know, brought home the point we're dealing with something serious here. And by the end of 2008, after all of our normal meetings and one or two special meetings to deal with developments uh, either in, in financial institutions or with financial institutions or in the markets, the policy rate had gotten to zero. So it moved down very, very rapidly in a short period of time. Yeah. You mentioned the FOMC cut the Fed funds rate effectively to zero in, in 2008. 
But the recovery remains slow and, you know, somewhat inconsistent. And that's when the extraordinary measures were added to the FOMC's toolkit to, to stimulate growth. Can you share how you viewed things like quantitative easing and, and why you supported these measures? And, and candidly, do you think they worked? Well, yes. Uh, when we got the policy rate down to what amounted to zero and felt that more stimulus needed to be uh, applied to the economy in order to basically uh, shock it out of, uh, uh, out of its uh, paralysis in some respects and out of its, uh, deep re- the deep recession that developed after the crisis. I obviously witnessed uh, the resourcefulness, uh, particularly uh, Chairman Ben Bernanke, who was extremely well-versed in not only the history of the Great Depression, but all of the academic discussion of what you do in various circumstances as a central bank. This was literature that I was not particularly familiar with. So when he proposed quantitative easing, I needed an education uh, to understand what this was all about. And there are nuances around uh, quantitative easing and versus credit easing versus and quantitative versus qualitative. So there are, um, you know, there are variations on this theme. But the basic idea, which after I understood what was he was talking about, seemed to be as good an approach as we could come up with, was to create new money in the form of bank reserves and buy securities to put pressure on long-term rates. And the idea at the time, of course, was to keep rates low, particularly the long rates, the longer-term rates, longer maturity rates that really do affect things like the housing market, affect the automobile industry with car loans, affect investments uh, of corporations and households that tend to borrow on a longer maturity basis. Right. And did it work? Um, it's very difficult to prove that point in a cause and effect way because as soon as we undertook the policy, other aspects of economic reality would intermingle with our policy, as you would expect, and to kind of deconstruct all that and say, this exactly caused that or this caused that exactly is not possible. But, you know, with the benefit of some hindsight, three rounds of quantitative easing plus the policy rate at zero has nurtured a slow recovery, which now I would say is a satisfactory outcome, but it took quite a while to get there. So you would characterize the economy as having returned to what we would consider normal by historical standards? Certainly you hear that expression a lot, return to normal, and and you hear the expression often in an aspirational sense, I would like things to return to normal. Sure. I'm a little wary of the term normal because that suggests that the economic conditions have returned to what they were in 2007 or 2006. That is not the case at all. Uh, So I resist a literal use of the expression return to normal. We have achieved a cyclical recovery, and many of the indicators of economic health are at levels or at rates 
that are similar to what they were before the crisis and before the recession. But at the same time, the economy has moved on. You never go back in time to conditions that existed sometime in the past. So there have been demographic trends, for example. Uh, there have been trends related to important aspects of the economy like labor market dynamism or business sector dynamism and so forth that have evolved over that time and taken us, in my opinion, to a new place. And that new place uh, is the result of a cyclical recovery, but the play out of certain secular trends that may or may not be structural in nature. So to me, the word normal is more of a code word for a set of desired conditions. And those desired conditions are indicated first by the dual mandate of the Federal Reserve, and that is low and stable prices, uh, inflation under control, and full employment. Right. We are very close to achieving those two objectives. So that and the sustainability of, of growth in the economy and other ways of describing a healthy and, as I said, sustainable picture, that to me is what normal means. Right. And we have returned to that, but it's a different economy than 2007. Sure. Well, I don't want to ask you to take out a crystal ball, but I, I do want to ask you how you feel our economy is positioned for the future. I think the economy is uh, right now quite well positioned for continuity over the last few years, and that would be uh, indicated by growth, GDP growth, gross domestic product growth in the neighborhood of 2%, uh, inflation being low uh, and gradually inching up to our target or something close to our target of 2%, and employment remaining quite healthy and, and continuing to improve incrementally even though we are in the conditions that are very close to full employment. Right. So I think for that future that I just spelled out, we are well positioned. I am less sure of some of the stated promises of, of uh, public officials that we will see a spurt in growth to the three to four percent range or even higher. That I am. I, I don't want to. I don't want to naysay it. I, I, I would certainly like to see it develop if it were consistent with the goals of the Federal Reserve and inflation and employment, but I'm just less sure that it's uh, possible. Oh, well, Dennis, let me change gears and ask you, over the course of the decade that you've been at the Atlanta Fed, how have your views of policymaking changed in that time? Well, it's been, first of all, an extraordinary period of economic history. So policymaking during a financial crisis is quite different than policymaking in a slow but gradual recovery. So I have seen quite different circumstances which call for different, let's just say, kinds of responses or, 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 or a different order of immediacy of, for action. Right. During the financial crisis and for that matter in the recession, when the risk of really seeing the economy unravel further and do something 
as damaging as the Great, Great Depression. Certainly the, the need for decisive action and to move at the right time was much more intense than during seven or eight years of recovery where you had a little bit more uh, freedom of action to, to deliberate, to consider, to in some cases delay, to see how things played out and so forth. So I would make that distinction. And distinction. I've experienced both and, and right. they are two different sets of circumstances for policymaking. I guess before I got into a policymaking role, I just could not, having not been exposed or having no experience, have appreciated the constant uncertainty in which policymaking is is uh, is being made. It's how policymaking is taking place. Right. And it's always very difficult in real time to know exactly where the economy is. You have a lot of different data that you are following, and sometimes the data paint conflicting pictures, and sometimes the data methodology under the data may be not totally up to modern standards, or for the sake of consistency, the data collectors have been doing it the same way for a long time. There are a lot of things that come into play that that are helpful to know when you are trying to weigh what this means versus what that means. And I don't, I, I certainly didn't appreciate that until I got into the role. So sure. it, at the end of the day, it's almost unavoidable that policymaking requires some judgment and some weighing and rational people can differ on what the weight should be on this or that particular economic piece of data. I think now I appreciate, but maybe took me a while to appreciate the importance of anchoring in one way or another. The Federal Reserve and the Federal Open Market Committee are anchored in our dual mandate. So everything proves back to the objectives that Congress has given us, and that is low and stable prices or a low inflation rate which we define at 2%, and full employment. And so having those anchors uh, helps you kind of navigate as you're going along because you can always compare, to some extent, compare where you think the economy is relative to those anchors. Right. I guess you feel like you have a North Star to exactly. guide yourself. You actually touched on my next question. As a policymaker, if you knew in... 2007, what you know now in 2016, uh, would you have done anything differently and, and what would that be? Well, I, as I look back on it, and as I've said just in the answer to the previous question, there's a lot about the context of policymaking and the, like it or not, the reality that you're dealing in, a, in a, an environment of uncertainty constantly that I probably could have appreciated more deeply had I taken the counsel of people who have been in this role, in the Federal Reserve or in the role of policymaking that's similar in other, in other fields for a long time. Right. And now, with the benefit of hindsight, I know what questions to ask. Then I would not have, I did not know exactly what question 
to ask. Right. But, you know, it might have been something as simple as saying to a Ben Bernanke or a Don Cohn, who had been around for a while, you know, what about policymaking have you learned? What wisdom have you developed over the years to help guide someone who's new to it? And to help, not just, I'm not asking a technical question. I'm asking more of a wisdom question. Right. And I, as I look back on it, probably I should have done more of that. I see. Now, part of the way we operate, to be, defend myself a little bit, part of the way we operate is each reserve bank is independent and the presidents are independent in their uh, uh, developing their views on monetary policy. So... You know, we were expected to be shaping our views independently as opposed to pre-meeting uh, collaboration. We, no one ever does that. Right. But I, I probably could have found a time uh, during the, the early years in which I could have gotten more of a, of a grand perspective from people who had been doing this for a longer period of time than certainly I had. Right. Dennis, when you walk into the Federal Reserve's headquarters boardroom in Washington, D.C., now that you're a veteran policymaker, how does it feel different uh, now versus the first time when you walked into it as a newcomer to the Fed? Well, it's familiar territory now, of course. Ten years ago, um, when I walked in for the first time, this is the Federal Open Market Committee committee room. It's a Maybe just to describe it for your listeners, it's a quite large room and quite ornate in certain ways. And it is, let us say, um, appropriate for the seriousness of the matters that are deliberated in this room. And so being at that table for the first time was, you know, at least it could have been a pretty intimidating first couple of meetings experience. Now, I had been in the room before, and this is just a little story that you might find amusing. In 1994, I had taken a course uh, at MIT, uh, took a sabbatical from my business life, and and it involved a trip to Washington where we met with Alan Blinder, who who at that time was the vice chair of the Federal Reserve. And we met in this particular room, and I happened to get a seat directly across from vice chair Blinder at the the time. And I remember as he was uh, telling us in August terms about conduct of monetary policy in the Federal Reserve, I reached under the table and there was gum stuck uh, to the (laughs) the bottom of the table. And I remember thinking to myself, well, these people are pretty normal people, actually. You know, they they do important things, but they're just real people after all. Right. And so maybe to some small extent, that memory uh, helped calm me down in that first meeting. Right. Well, what aspects of the job of being a Reserve Bank president will you miss the most? Well, inevitably, after all of the memories fade of the important decisions you've been a part of or the events that you have witnessed, the lingering memories are almost always of the people. Right. and the people I've been associated with. And that includes uh, the members of the staff here and my colleagues at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and my colleagues among the presidents. There are 12 presidents, so I was one of 12. 
and then um, my relationship with two chairs, Bernanke and Yellen, and all of the governors at the Board of Governors in Washington. All of those relationships have been extremely satisfying for the whole period of time that I've been in the Fed. It's an unusual organization in that we do battle out uh, hard decisions often, and there's conflict and differences of opinion, but it's extraordinarily collegial. And the staff of this reserve bank and all of the reserve banks are highly dedicated to the mission of the central bank and hardworking people who have very strong skills. And so it's just been a privilege to be in an institution, call it a government institution, that uh, operates so well and so effectively. Right. Uh, And that's because of the quality of the people. Yeah. So I will miss the people and miss those associations. And uh, you knew this would be my next question. Uh, What will you miss the least? Certainly uh, waking up every day and almost the very first thing I do er every day and have done for years is look at a little schedule that my assistant gave me the evening before saying this is what you do today <laughs> and, or the, and uh, this is what your, what your schedule is for tomorrow and she gave it to me. And seeing it be uh, one meeting or one thing after another, some of which uh, I know require preparation and are going to be challenging and the issues require having your thinking cap on that uh, relentless pace of, of pretty critical meetings and so forth, maybe I won't miss that too much. Right. Uh, always feeling that there's more I could do to do my job well and more preparation required than I put into something Some in some cases. Those feelings are never good. Uh, so I will not miss that feeling. I, I can understand that. Dennis, come March, will you transition to becoming a Fed watcher or will you go cold turkey for a while? I think it'll be very hard for me to um, not be a Fed watcher for probably the rest of my life. You know, having been an insider in so many important decisions that affected the country and for that matter affected the whole world so deeply in a period of history that uh, was so unusual and and so demanding. So I'm sure that part of my regular existence will be uh, watching the news and trying to understand what my colleagues are doing inside those meetings. And it's it will not be easy to wean myself from that flow of information, that flow of, of uh, important issues. So I expect I will be a Fed watcher for, for the duration. Having said that, I'm going to try to uh, channel some energies into some other things that are, are important uh, in public policy and perhaps in the business world as well. Uh, but I will always be quite interested in what the Fed is up to. Right. Uh, well, if you could give one piece of advice to your successor as Reserve Bank president, uh, what would it be? Well, I may have that opportunity in in, uh, a few weeks' time, and my advice will be to start with an approach that respects the organization. And that's not to say honor all the traditions, but rather to to start from the perspective that this is an organization full of 
highly dedicated people with very sophisticated skills in what they do and a record of integrity and a record of, for that matter, policy and operational success that I think needs to be respected. So I would advise my successor to use that as a opening frame of mind in learning the job and then uh, playing his or her role as a policymaker and as a, the CEO of the Atlanta Fed going forward. Well, Dennis, um, how would you describe your, your proudest accomplishments here at the Atlanta Fed? Well, there have been a number of accomplishments. Uh, I certainly inherited a fine organization, so I, uh, in no way was I dealing with something that needed to be turned around. It was a strong organization when I arrived, but we have done a number of things to advance the organization and to introduce some new things, Um, and there are too many to enumerate uh, in detail, but I think that this reserve bank in the southeast of the United States has gone as far as any of uh, the other reserve banks in systematizing our outreach and engagement of the business world and of the general public to try to get anecdotal input that's quite useful, really useful in uh, developing a view for monetary policy. So we have here what we call our regional economic information network that involves a number of people who are in very frequent contact with large employers and major economic actors uh, across the Southeast. I'm very proud of that. Proud of some of the innovations our research department has done. Very proud of the role that the Atlanta Fed has played in managing the part of the payment system of the country and the strategic role that we've played in helping the Federal Reserve move the payments system uh, along and make it safer and uh, at the same time make it faster. So we've been played a role in that. Right. Our supervision area has, I think, responded well to the situation that developed in 2008 and 2009, and the best indication of their success is that the banking system across the Southeast is in a very sound condition. And I could go on and on. We have a number of other different activities in the bank. All have taken a good thing and made it better. Right. And I've been part of a team that did that, so I have to be proud of that. Well, Dennis, as, as we've made clear by this point, this job has been a, a fairly all-consuming position for you. And after you step down as, as Atlanta Fed president, uh, what are your plans? Are you going to have a, a ceremonial smashing of your alarm clock or anything like that? Well, that alarm clock has gone off fairly early in the morning yeah. uh, over the last 10 years. I'll bet. So uh, rather than smash it, I, I may just uh, put it on mute uh, for a while. <laughs> when I was asked to look at the statement that was going to be issued announcing my retirement, I said, well, let's change this word retire to step down. Uh, You'll uh, know I never said retire today. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I'm hoping to stay active and not fully retire and find uh, other channels for my, uh, my energies. But I will be in greater control of my time, no doubt, and I will probably be doing 
a portfolio of things as opposed to one full-time job or more than full-time job uh, like the one I've been in the last few years. Dennis, thank you for talking with me today. And I know I speak for all of us here at the Atlanta Fed when I say that uh, we're not only going to miss your leadership and your steady hand at the rudder, but we're also going to miss having you as a colleague and, and your successor will have some really big shoes to fill. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been a, a pleasure working with you and uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful interview. And that brings us to the end of another Economy Matters podcast episode. I hope you'll join us next month when we talk to Atlanta Fed economist Melinda Pitts about her research into the impact of financial debt on health and mortality rates. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.